following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. Well, those are some wise words there from Utah Phillips with Bum on the Rods. You are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. I'd like to start today's show just with a couple of quotes here. The first one is by ACTU President Michelle O'Neill. We live in a society, not an economy. If the government doesn't look after people, people can't look after the economy. We cannot and will not accept sacrificing Australian lives at the altar of economy. And the second is the coronavirus recession will scar the employment prospects of people in their 20s and 30s, with research warning they may become trapped in low-paying, low-skilled jobs for years. And that was Shane Wright, Senior Economics Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Young people have suffered the largest increases in unemployment and the biggest falls in jobs since the start of the pandemic. In June, the jobless rate for those aged between 20 and 24 soared to 13.9%, with almost 150,000 jobs disappearing since the start of the year. COVID has the potential to leave a whole generation of people behind, creating an entire generation who'll be battling to rise above poverty. Throughout this pandemic, unions have been fighting to protect workers' rights and safety at work. Worker solidarity is essential to sustainable post-COVID economic recovery. Joining us in conversation this morning to discuss how the pandemic has severely impacted young workers and the importance of unions in their future, we would like to welcome to the show Bella Hemmerreich and Rachel Burgess from the Young Workers Centre with Unions ACT. Bella is an organiser and administration officer at the Young Workers Centre and she's also a student at the ANU. She's passionate about getting young people active in their local communities and fighting collectively for a better future. And Rachel is the outreach coordinator and also an organiser at the Young Workers Centre and a student at the ANU as well. And she's studying economics and policy studies and is interested in working alongside others to organise better outcomes for young people. So Bella and Rachel, welcome to the show. Wonderful to have you this morning. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So perhaps, you know, we're going to talk about unions and, um, you know, some of us listening will be union members and some may be considering becoming union members. Perhaps you could give us a little bit of an introduction about unions ACT and the Young Workers Centre. Sure. So um, unions ACT is, I guess, Uh, the peak body representing unions in the ACT. We have, I think, 33 different affiliates, um, and those are all trade unions themselves or community organisations that align with our values. Um, And for us, it's about fighting for a fair go and for dignity in the workplace and for the rights of working people in Canberra. So that's what we do at Unions ACT. Um, And then as an initiative of Unions Unions ACT, sorry, um, is the Young Worker Centre, The Young Worker Centre started up about halfway through last year and it's very much focused on uh, the rights that under-25s have in the workplace um, and the exploitation that they tend to face, which is um, pretty severe. Um, And we're partially a campaign and advocacy body, but also an advice service for those young people. Is there a minimum age for people to join the Young Worker Centre? I know it's up to 25, but you get a lot of kids doing part-time jobs. Yeah, generally we go as low as 14, but I know in the ACT you can work at any age. So (laughs) we'd be happy to help out anyone, to be honest. Okay, great, great. Um, And interestingly that this was just started last year. 
So there must have been a little bit of um, intuition that something was coming and you guys were going to need this. Yeah, you'd think so. I think um, for us, it's like a, it's been a long time coming. Um, the exploitation didn't start last year. Um, it's just that we, you know, had the ability to start addressing it. Um, it's been something that's been underlying for ages and it's an increasing product of the casualization and the insecurity that we're seeing come into our economy that we have been seeing for quite a while. Um, and that's predominantly affecting the young people uh, when we go to work. So this is really just set up for us to address the issues that have sort of always been there um, and now even more so with COVID. Yeah, it's really sad that it takes a crisis for people to start paying attention. Yeah. As you said, these issues have been there all the time, but now they're really, really obvious, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think um, what we're seeing happen to young people, uh, especially through COVID, is more just um, a symptom of something that was already there. COVID's really just exacerbated those issues um, and those issues as I was saying before, casualization, insecurity. Um, so I think we're going to see more, more wage theft, more exploitation, more unsafe work practices um, as we recover from this. Yeah. And I think in every sector, like almost every guest we've had on who works in the social sector has said the same thing. These issues are not new. There's just now there's a spotlight on them because they're really in the forefront. And there's so many people experiencing, you know, the hardships and the fallout. So if, you know, say a, a young worker was concerned about a situation at work and they weren't feeling too confident to approach their employer, they didn't feel their employer would listen, um, would they then come to you and ask for advice or how does that work? Um, yeah, so we run a free advice service that is funded by the ACT government. Um, it's really there for anyone that's under 25. It's not just for people that are already dealing with an issue. It's for people that want to know more as well about their rights. Um, it does tend to be people that are dealing with an issue at work that come to us. Um, most, most often that's wage theft as well. Um, but yeah, we are a place that they can go. They can get a bit more information. We can give them some support and some advice. And if it's not something that we ourselves can help them with, um, we can also refer them, whether that be to their union or to a community legal services, that, if that's what's needed. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a pretty holistic service for any sort of help with workplace mm. rights. Yeah, I was really surprised to learn that apparently young workers are twice as likely to be ripped off or seriously injured at work as opposed to older workers. Yeah, it's something that um, we were pretty shocked to find out, but I guess it also makes sense, just like Rachel was saying, young workers are almost entirely casually employed. Um, they're often operating in the gig economy, they're balancing multiple jobs while they're at uni. Um, and also, we're dealing with a generation that's grown up, um, you know, under the Howard years and under kind of like a neoliberal consensus from both major parties. And so the level of, I guess, like workplace right literacy that young people have is just incredibly low. Young people often don't know what the minimum wage is. So they think being exploited is the normal. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of seen and reinforced by older people as a rite of passage for young people. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have managers, supervisors, and even sometimes your parents saying, that's just what you put up with when you're 18. You can get $12 an hour. It's a traineeship. It's good skills for the future. And it's quite a lot of work to try and actually write that narrative in a lot of young people's heads and, and get them to think about what they can they can demand at their work. Yeah. Well, these are going to be the employers of the future, right? So you want to set a really good precedent in... Um, helping them become good employers at some point. Absolutely, and they're also going to be the future leaders of the union movement, and I think making sure that they um, have a really clear idea about what a collective future can look like is really important, and instilling that at a, at a young age or at our age, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, more than half of young workers apparently have had their wages stolen by their adult bosses. I mean, is, is that something that, again, falls into that area where it's sort of a rite of passage, where they think it's, uh, you know, appropriate to treat young workers that way? Or It's a couple of different things. I'm sure a lot of people have different perspectives on it. It's partly, uh, yeah, that young workers are often seen as expendable workers um, and seen as, you know, the 
last to be hired, the first to be fired. We've seen that particularly in the pandemic. Um, but it's also that mostly they're working in industries where wage theft is really just built into the business model. So if you're looking at places like hospitality, being an apprentice, um, working in retail, a lot of bosses you know, really factor in being able to underpay and exploit and cut corners into the way that they make a profit. Mm. So if someone is in a, um, a field where they think there isn't a union, is there a union for every sector? So you know, so some areas I think there's a little bit of confusion around what union would be the most supportive for them? In theory... Yes. Um, There are definitely some industries where it's difficult to know what your appropriate union is. And there's also a lot of industries where unions don't have the capacity to or are reluctant to help casual workers. Um, And there's some industries where they're just really, there's no active organiser. Particularly in the ACT, there's some unions who they'll have coverage split over New South Wales and ACT. So it's pretty hard to get anything actively happening in Canberra. So it's state rather than national? Yeah, so they're all state-based and then they um, come to us as as the state peak body. I guess that's kind of the beauty of the Young Workers Centre is that often um, the advice inquiries that we do get are for industries where the union is either unable to help, uh, it's unclear who the union is, or the young person is not a union member. um, And I think we're really there to try and fill that gap where we know that the young person is keen to do something, but the existing infrastructure isn't enough. And so we sort of step in there um, to do it in between. So do you have things... Look, I'm, I'm a union member of an international union, actually, that I joined in Canada when I lived there. Um, so I've really pro-union, seen a lot of great help the union can give. And we used to have a situation where, um, say, for instance, there was a job, a job site, and there were maybe some union members working on the site and some people who were not union members and that if there was a majority of union members they could then unionize the site so they would then make that particular project a union project is that how it works in australia could say say young workers who are in a situation where they're not union members but maybe there's union members around them they can unionize the workplace so they could have some solidarity totally so that's kind of always the aim i suppose Mm -hmm. at unions act and of the union movement is to when you look at a workplace, try and get as many union members as possible so that you have um, enough collective power in that workplace to make sure that you can actually get a better deal collectively. With a lot of young workers, it's a pretty hard thing to try and get a closed shop workplace where everyone is a union member. Um, And so sometimes if it's just them, they're limited to the kind of... um, individual servicing that a union can provide so we can help them with legal advice we can help them you know talk to their supervisor talk to their manager or put a wage claim through um the kind of official process um but really yeah the the beauty of the union movement in australia and in the act is actually trying to make sure that you get union workplaces that are able to collectively demand better so if someone say is in a workplace where there's no union members but they would like to unionize their workplace can they then come to you for help to do that Um, For sure. I think that's probably quite a common situation for young people. A lot of them are the only union members in their workplace, um, especially in hospitality, because there's such a high turnover and you're getting a new person in every couple of weeks. Um, And for a lot of them, it's their first job. Maybe they don't know what unions are or they don't have a good understanding of unionism. Um, And it can be a really hard thing and a really confronting thing to talk to your co-workers about. Um, And if you're a casual or part-time or in any sort of insecure work, Often you don't want to put yourself on the line by running around talking about unions. You don't want to be seen as a troublemaker. Um, But there is a role, I guess, for the Young Worker Centre and for Unions ACT to be able to help um, provide some cover for those young people and help them in being able to talk union. Um, 
but also we provide a lot of training for those young people themselves. Um, and one of the great programs that we do is called, we did it at the beginning of this year slash end of last year called Summer Patrol. Um, and it's something that we stole from Norway, um, which is a great place to steal things from, uh, and the UK as well. Um, and basically what we we're doing is just training up a bunch of young people and how to talk to other young workers about joining their union and about their rights and that sort of thing. Um, and then we just head out into... Um, a hospitality precinct and just start having those conversations with people and once you break down that barrier of feeling confident in having those conversations and just starting to have them um it's it's amazing how much uh more confident you feel and how much more empowered you feel to then go back into your workplace and start having the conversations that you need to have mm. so it's really empowering giving them that knowledge too yeah it is and it's a lot of fun too because we do it as a big group um and you get to come out of out of different conversations and uh talk to others about how theirs went and what's going on for different workers so you learn a lot about what other young workers are experiencing as well so what if a say a young worker was trying to unionize or trying to um have the employer um, acknowledge union rights and they were experiencing repercussions what sort of protections are in place for them so um, you know the, the employer is using the excuse not because you tried to unionize but yeah. um, you're casual so we're letting you go and then yeah. how do you justify that that wasn't because that person was trying to um, have their rights protected it's sort of a tricky one because there is the legal protection there where you are legally allowed to assert your rights in your workplace and you're legally allowed to be a union member and talk union to your co-workers um but if you're a casual that can be a really really tricky space to navigate they can sort of just fire you um and it's illegal to fire someone for those things but um it's also part of the structure of our workforce at the moment that we don't allow casuals and insecure workers to have that confidence and to actually have the rights that they're meant to have um because it's just too insecure and there's no protection for them when the boss does decide to take action. So it's a, it's a really, really tricky one. Because then it becomes how do you prove that you, yeah, know, you were let go yeah. because you tried to unionise, not because there isn't enough work for you where the boss can say, look, I just you're casual, we don't have enough work for you, don't have enough shifts for you this week. Yeah, and a lot of employers don't even, um, they're not even straightforward about firing someone. Mm -hmm. They tend to just stop putting shifts on their roster mm -hmm. or, you know, remove them from a Facebook group or whatever it is, however they're organising it. So a lot of times young people don't even know that they've been fired um, until like a month down the track and they haven't had a shift. Yeah. So yeah, it's really tricky. Now, do we have something called zero hours contracts in the ACT or is that still not legal? I know, no, certain places I know that about do. that in the yeah. UK um, and it sounds awful. And in certain, certain industries <laughs> in North America that, too, no. they have zero hours contracts. Yeah, I think uh, legally you have to give, it depends on um, the industry that you're in, mm -hmm. but legally you do have to give um, someone a certain amount of hours per fortnight or per week. Regardless but, of whether they're casual or part-time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. And do you have um, in your shops that are unionised here, do you have shop stewards? Is that something that, that Unions ACT has? Yeah. Like sort of your, your representative that you can go to when there's an issue? So we call them delegates in Australia. Yeah, okay. um, and so, yeah, effectively um, for different industries in the ACT and obviously um, some of the biggest industri industries here is the public service, um, construction, and then we've got the United Workers Union, which covers um, cleaning, hospitality, childcare those really active unions have um, a bunch of organisers and their main role is to train up delegates in the workplace. So they're there to ask people to join the union to talk about the importance of being union. And they're looking for people that are, um, you know, the leaders in that workplace that people already trust, that understand what would be good for their co-workers um, and really trying to give them the skills and the training to be able to turn it into a workplace where the union is strong enough um, and the people in their union in the workplace are strong enough to um, make sure this 
this kind of exploitation doesn't happen. Mm, that's great. Um, so say for someone who's not experiencing um, unfairness at work or wage theft or anything like that, but they like the idea of joining a union, what can a union do for them? Like what sort of things do unions support workers? What areas do they support workers in? Um, I would say that the when you're getting exploited at work and the function of the union becomes to protect you and to help you out of that, that's actually the last function of a union, really. Um, a union is not just there as a lawyer. It's there to help you collectivise your workplace. It's there to help you protect the rights that you already have so you're not, you're not going backwards. Um, but it is also there to help you improve the rights in your workplace and that can be anything it doesn't matter if you just want to pay rise or if you would your like your safety standards improved um, or anything like that so that's sort of the day-to-day of what a union does it's about um, coming together with your workmates deciding on um, what you want from your workplace and pushing for those outcomes to your employer and that's the day-to-day the servicing side of the union is really just it's it's a backup essentially mm. and not to get too theoretical but I think like you could arguably say that in any workplace where um, there's a boss who tells you what to do and doesn't work with you is um, a workplace that's exper- experiencing exploitation. So I think the main thing is we're operating from the basis that almost all workers at work should be having their conditions improved and currently it's not great. And so it's never too early to start unionising. Mm-hmm. And then some of the things that we take for granted now were um, won for us by unions, things like um, like annual leave and sick pay and penalty rates. Could you ladies tell us a little bit about the history of unions in Australia? Like, I know that across the world there's been a lot of great stories about sort of very volatile situations that were at the forefront of creating the union movement, but I'm not too familiar with how the union started in Australia. Totally. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty, pretty colourful and rich history in Australia. Um, I think one of the biggest things that Australia is known for is winning an eight-hour day very early on, um, and that was really started in Victoria when the stonemasons, um, which was a pretty large workforce and a pretty underpaid workforce, and they worked very long days, um, all walked off the job together. And, and how long ago was that? How recently are we talking? Quite long ago. I'm not sure. Oh, okay, so this is... Um, 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Um, late 1800s. Yes. Yeah. Um, we did get a history tour at Trades Hall and we're told <laughs> the exact date, but I have forgotten. Um, but I think that was a really foundational step in um, Australian Union history. I think it's probably important to mention as well that um, because Australia is, you know, a very, um, it's a colonised country and a lot of people came here as convicts um, and worked as, so as miners and as labourers. Yeah. Totally. That a lot of the initial union activity um, was actually pretty against migrant workers um, and against First Nation workers and part of the union workers' claims would be also to include the white Australia policy. So it's an ongoing um, mission of the Australian movement to make sure that we're not actually selling out our comrades to get a share of the wealth of this country. Um, and there's been some fantastic wins where everyone has you know, worked together and won amazing things like maternity leave and like an eight-hour day. Um, and also fantastic things in the 70s. I think it's one that a lot of unions kind of hark back to is when the construction union of that day um, used their union power for social impact. And so... The, the green bands in Sydney in the 70s was where construction unions wouldn't work on big property developments that would sell out ordinary people, that would force working class people out of the city or that would destroy um, really special bushland. So it always gets me really excited and I think a lot of young people are excited to think about how unions can be involved, not just in paying condition issues, but thinking about um, what we really want to protect in our cities and what role workers have in that. Well, that's fantastic. And if you want to find out more about the BLF, um, have a listen into our SoundCloud site along 
line in the sound and look up for Dave Karen, who uh, tells a great yarn there. Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So you mentioned the trades hall. Is that something the public can have a look at? So there's a trades hall in every state. We just call ours Union CCT. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't quite have the history um, of some of the other older trades halls. Victorian Trades Hall is a very old, beautiful building in Melbourne and it's open to the public, perhaps not at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but post-pandemic, there's a fantastic history tour you can do, being taken through all the halls and the different rooms and learn a lot about the union history of this country. Oh, that's wonderful. And there's something like apparently 2 million working people are members of currently members of Australian unions. So that's a pretty good percentage of the population. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I think there was a moment in this pandemic where um, Scott Morris was talking about which groups, you know, would be a, a part of deciding industrial relations um, and was talking about, you know, involving community or fringe groups. But unions are, yeah, about 17% um, mm. of adults at the moment across Australia. So it's definitely not not a fringe group, even if it was smaller than it once was. Mm. Now, are you coming up against sort of union-busting tactics at all or is that something we just sort of harken back to the Thatcher days in the UK? Um, <laughs> I think we are very much coming up against it every single day when we turn up for work. It's sort of something that's um, it's not gone away um, and I don't think it, it ever will go away because we are fundamentally at odds with the objectives of um, politicians and of big businesses and big banks and stuff like that. Um, so they're always going to want to um, object to whatever we're doing and put in as many barriers as they possibly can. Um, and even when we were just talking about um, the young workers' ability to stand up for their rights and being able to be union in their workplace, um, that's such such a major barrier for us um, because you, you really can't do that with any confidence. Mm-hmm. You can't do that and know that you're not going to get fired for it, even though that legal right is there. So that's one of the biggest weapons they have um, that they like to use against us, especially as young people, is that insecurity. Um, they like to take away our stability so that we can't fight back, mm-hmm. essentially. And the program that Rachel mentioned, Summer Patrol, that we did in the summer, um, the day before we did that, actually, we got a letter from the Australian Hotels Association, which is basically a collection of hospitality bosses, asking us to... Um, officially cease the program and to not go out the next day into their venues and saying they would actually um, ask us to leave the venues that we entered. And that's just young people trying to talk as a customer on the other side of the bench to young workers at work about their rights at work. So that kind of heavy-handed response shows that it is something really powerful that we're doing, even if it is, you know, pretty reasonable. Um, And yet we are experiencing it just in in everyday work when we try and run projects like Mm. that. As soon as you get pushbacks from the powerful, that tells you you're on the right track. Absolutely. (laughs) So it just goes back to that quote I gave you from um, the president of the um, ACTU, Michelle O'Neill, when she said, we live in a society, not an economy. And that, you know, we've got this people versus profit model and, you know, a lot of struggle to get the people who are very pro-profit and not too worried about people to pay attention. So it's about maybe this bit of humanity. It's trying Mm. to humanise the workforce again rather than keeping them like machinery. Yeah, I think that's some of the most concerning rhetoric coming out of the pandemic is this idea of economic recovery. Mm. And for me, it's just, you know, what's the point of recovering an economy that doesn't work for us? Because we're not there, we're not there to uphold an economy, it's there to uphold our society. So mm. we need to make sure that when we are recovering, that we're talking about um, getting outcomes for people, not just outcomes for our GDP. Mm. And this is a real risk, right? Like this potential to have a lot of really fabulous changes happen 
you know, when we start to get fully into the economic recovery and COVID starts to fade away, I don't know if it'll ever go away completely, but um, we can start to focus on other things other than the plague. Mm. Um, so that, that's a huge part of, you know, the hopefulness of what could change, people learning what hasn't worked and doesn't work and they don't want to keep perpetuating it. But then we've also got the situation where because people are so desperate at this time, you know, there's people who said he's going to long-term unemployment, they might be willing to concede things they wouldn't normally. So um, is that is that where the unions can really step in for that? Totally. I think it's, it's a huge responsibility of the union movement right now to um, look at things like already JobSeeker, um, the unemployment payment is set to go down in September and then down again in December back to an unlivable rate that it's been like for the past 26 years. Um, and, you know, part of the reason we were talking before about young workers being in insecure work and accepting exploitation and accepting low wages is that the alternative of being um, involuntarily unemployed for a long time is a really stressful situation. And so, um, yeah, I think the way we're heading at the moment, it feels like working conditions are set to get a lot worse for young people and a lot worse for working class people in this country. But on the other hand, it is a real opportunity that I think a lot of particular young people are starting to, I think, realise that, starting to get really concerned for their future and thinking that one of their urgent priorities is, is making sure that they're not in casual work forever, they're not in gig economy work forever. Um, and so I, I hope and I think we hope that a lot of young people are looking to be a part of their union, be an active unionist as a way to try and secure some better rights for their future. And the gig economy is a fairly recent thing, right? So it's, it's really currently, I guess, the generations that's just reached adulthood or young adulthood that has mostly experienced the gig economy um, lifestyle or work style. Um, so for someone that's not too familiar with the gig economy, how does that differ from, like, let's say, more long-term stable job? I think just in every possible way, really. It is something that's exploding at the moment um, and it's um, a bit scary to watch, to be honest. Um, essentially, if you're a gig economy worker, you are not an employee, so you don't have any of the rights that an employee would have. Is it contractor or not even Yeah, that? so you're a contractor. Um, a lot of them are contracted to lots of different people. Some of them are just contracted to one person and doing lots of different jobs. Um, but essentially, it means that you don't have a minimum wage. Um, for me, the scariest part is that you don't get workers' compensation if you get injured. You can get injured at work and you get absolutely nothing. Um, and that's really scary because a lot of these people are like bike riders for delivery services or they're heading into random strangers' homes and you can get injured doing that sort of work and you can get hurt um, and you have absolutely no backup for that. And it is sort of... Um, it's, it's this myth that the employer keeps perpetuating that it's about flexibility and that people want flexibility and, and that that's what we're all chasing as young people is flexible work. But I think in reality what you would find is that a lot of young people actually just want a bit of stability um, and we want the option for some permanency. Um, so it's, it's not the flexibility that they're talking about. When they talk about flexibility, they're talking about flexibility for themselves. It's flexibility on whether or not they have to pay us properly and whether or not they have to look after us. Um, when in reality that flexibility for us is just you might get some work, you might get paid today, um, and it's it's just that uncertainty. And it's really damaging um, for the rights that we have, but also for people's mental health to not have any certainty. Mm -hmm. So where did that model come from? Like, was it just the digital age and making job-seeking, like changing the way we look for jobs? Or? I think it's a couple of different things. I think probably, like, the, the model is actually quite old, right, that for a lot of our grandparents' generation they were showing up to a site with a boss and asking if there was any work that day and if there wasn't they'd have to head on home so it's an age-old thing that's been done by business um to 
yeah, make sure that they get workers when they want and they don't have to pay workers when they don't have to. But it's a particular result of a lot of, you know, yeah, really big tech companies. You think of Uber, you think of Deliveroo, um, trying to, yeah, make a new model that works. And I think for a lot of people, they're wanting to maybe not be in a job where they're there eight hours a week, five, five hours, five days a week um, and don't enjoy it. And so they're looking for something flexible and for something to escape the kind of normality of work, but they're not getting it. They're getting something that's actually a worse deal. Mm. And, you know, here I've got stats that say there's actually more than two million workers who are casually employed. So that's, mm. again, another huge portion of the workforce yeah. who don't have secure work. And I think that the unions have said that insecure work is a health hazard, like you've actually categorised it as a health hazard yeah, for some of the things so, we've discussed. Especially with um, mental health problems with young people, it can be really, really stressful and um, anxiety-inducing when you don't know how much you're going to make this week or whether you're going to have work next week and that sort of stuff. And it's also a huge community health hazard at the moment that we're seeing COVID spread almost entirely in privatised aged care, where the workers are casual. They're being put on different sites across the city every day. There's no, you know, patient to staff ratio. And you can see that in uh, public aged care where the pay is better, it's more permanent, and you've got a lot more safety regulations in place. They're actually able to stop the spread a lot more effectively. So having workers who are casual and insecurely employed as almost our entire essential workforce at the moment, if you're thinking of warehousing, you're thinking of grocery staff, you're thinking of NDIS providers as well, it's creating a competition for who can provide the cheapest service and often the least safe service. Um, and it's really like, you know, I think you can attribute a lot of this second wave to the fact that it's casual workers who are um, being put in a position where they don't have enough money or time to keep everyone safe at work. Mm-hmm. And they're also, well, this is recently you've won, um, I believe, paid pandemic leave for healthcare workers, that was um, happened last week or yeah. earlier in the week. Yeah, I think Whereas, some industries are doing it. It would be nice if every industry did. Yes. But yeah. So you've got also a situation with casual workers where if they're not feeling well, um, but they're still well enough to go to work, they're mm. probably going to choose to go to work in order to get the paycheck that they desperately need yeah. rather than stay at home and get tested or they're going to resist being tested in case they get a positive result, which will mean that they don't then have a job yeah and that's on top of them being locked out of JobKeeper as well so mm-hmm. these are people who have had their savings completely drained mm-hmm. they're not about to miss another day of work because they've got you know a bit of a sore throat or anything mm-hmm. so it, it puts everyone at risk and it's it's not their fault it's a structural mm-hmm. thing um but yeah it's putting our entire community at risk mm-hmm. so I believe when the, you said they're getting locked out of JobKeeper um then they're, they're only able to rely on JobSeeker then is that right if they're not um not able to get work or they are yeah yeah. Yeah. so I think um all casuals not all casuals casuals um who haven't been employed in one place for 12 months which is most casuals because that's the nature of casual work uh so yeah pretty much all casuals got locked out of JobKeeper which means that they got no wage subsidy which means that employers laid them off or just didn't give them shifts for the entire pandemic um and then some of them obviously would be able to rely on job seeker, but uh, migrant workers are mm. one of the groups that absolutely would not have been able to rely on that. Um, and we know a lot of people have borrowed from their family and their friends and have had to move back home in with their family and friends. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's an awful position for them to be in. Because mm. as you said, we've got a reduction in the rate coming up first in September, then potentially in December returning to the $40 a day joke that it's mm. been for 26 mm. years. I mean, with that many more people unemployed, I can't imagine the government believes they're going to re-employ that many people in, yeah. in four months. Um, you're going to have so many people that aren't going to be able to uh, contribute to the economy. 
Like it's it's not just about those individuals suffering, but it's about collectively. There's no contribution to the economy. They're not going to be able to afford shelter. That you know, there's, there's going to be you know mass homelessness increase. All those things. Mm. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting in the pandemic when the coalition government announced Job Seeker and Job Keeper. It was obviously a big relief for, for people to have a livable income, and it lifted millions of people out of poverty. Um, and similarly, Job Keeper, although a very flawed scheme and, and locked migrant workers out, was a good way to keep a lot of businesses going. But I think it's really clear that now that initial period was over and they managed to keep the economy rolling over, that it's kind of back to the, like the normal agenda. It's back to business as usual, where not only are they making sure that people feel vulnerable and at risk and will accept kind of any job they can, no matter how bad, they're also really trying to drive a wedge between people who are securely employed um, in permanent industries who can get JobKeeper and feel like the government's done okay by them, and then people who are casual and migrant workers who feel like they've been absolutely screwed and there's no support for them. And we're seeing that with the changes to push people back, that you're right, there's no way that the government can employ that many people unless they're going to announce a public jobs guarantee tomorrow. Uh, and instead, they're trying to subsidise big business and give big business this kind of position in society mm-hmm. as our job makers um, and the people who create jobs, where, in fact, a lot of those businesses are using that money to buy back their stocks mm-hmm. to recover their profit, profits. Mm-hmm. And we actually know that you know some of the big businesses in the world have had a great time during coronavirus and they've made so much money. Yeah, that would, would be Amazon. Would be Exactly, one. exactly. Um, but we actually, it's really exciting to see that some of those workers... You know, working for Amazon in the States are actually the ones who are taking collective action right now and achieve some fantastic wins for their working conditions because they were actually able to unionise because everyone at that workplace could see how, how clear the inequality was between Jeff Bezos and themselves. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Bezos and the rest of the world, I think. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, that's brilliant. So um, what about people who are trying to convert from casual to permanent work like what sort of supports you know that if they're getting employed regularly as a casual and they really should be put on as a permanent part-time like what sort of um, situations um, do you deal with like that yeah I think that's something that the union movement has been talking about for ages is how do we get those people into permanent work because that is what a lot of them um, are looking for Um, and there is there are people have some rights to to request conversion, um, but a request for conversion doesn't necessarily mean conversion. Um, And that's the big problem there is that we can ask as many times as we want, but unless the employer is forced to actually take care of us, they're not going to do it. Um, And the way that we force them to do that is by collectivizing, joining our unions, um, and actually campaigning for the structural change that it would take to to get casualization out and to get more permanency and security in. Mm-hmm. So did the unions have a, a very strong role in, in um, setting the minimum wage? Is that something that you actively um, are involved in? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely they had a, a very strong role in setting the minimum wage and then they continue to do so. Um, I think every year, I think it is, the Fair Work Commission reviews the minimum wage, decides whether or not it is adequate. Um, and every single year the union movement pushes for it to be increased because it's um, not adequate mm-hmm. <laughs> as it stands really. Um so, yeah, we're constantly pushing for it to be increased and then employer groups are constantly pushing for us to either get rid of it entirely mm-hmm. or to keep it down. Mm-hmm. Because there's been, I think, talk of saying there should be an increase because of the economic crisis for employers that the mm-hmm. wage should be frozen. So there's been discussion around that too. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, 
you know, one of the one of the tools that they use when they try and uh, like beat down workers is um, by dividing us. And one of the things that they've done specifically with unemployed workers and employed workers, um, when you're looking at job seeker and raising that rate, raising the rate of support for unemployed workers, um, is talking about minimum wage and saying, well, why are they getting more than you? Like you're working, sort of thing. Mm. Um, when in reality, what they're actually showing us is that we should be getting more as well because it's not livable. Um, the minimum wage isn't livable and you can't, you can't have savings on that. You can't reliably be able to afford your rent. You can't pay for your medical, um, your medical bills and your food bills and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, we need to raise it, but we need to raise it for everyone. We need everyone's living standards raised. And I think there was a quote, it's like, not about policing why a poor person has an iPhone. You should be asking why these mega corporations yeah. are not paying a living wage to their to their employees. Yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah. Oh, um, so on, on that note of divide and rule, now that, like you're saying, is an age-old, mm. tried and true, really effective method to uh, to keep anybody who's not rich at each other's throats. Um but I use, I mean, in Australian society, certainly where I was growing up here in Canberra and stuff, um, there's a word called solidarity, and I didn't really understand what it meant. Um, however, it's a basis of the union movement and the co-op movement who've been hand in hand in opposing capitalists, I guess, um, for centuries. Now, I've come to understand solidarity as what it's not and it's the opposite of divide and rule can you explain for us what solidarity is in in more positive terms yeah absolutely um you're spot on that it's kind of the foundation of all of the work that we do um i think like probably the simplest way um to understand it is to understand the fact that our freedom is tied up in each other's and so when we act in solidarity we're fighting for a collective um, liberation, I suppose, and a collective future. So solidarity is not doing someone a favour or helping someone out because you feel for them or you feel like it's the right thing to do, but it's understanding that you won't win unless they win and unless you win together. And so whether we're acting in solidarity with our comrades at work or with First Nations people in this country or with migrant workers, it's understanding that if we don't actually work together, we won't win the struggle. Mm. And, you know, we've noticed this because... We've, you know, we talk a lot about community themes here and um, a lot of the people we have on the show um, are sharing with us community response to situations. And because we've literally been slammed by disaster after disaster for the last sort of eight months, um, we're just finding that communities and the solidarity of community is actually coming up with better solutions. Like they actually know what they need and they're much mm-hmm. better at solving their situation and their problems than handing that power over to an authority to make decisions for them from a, a non-lived experience or removed experience. Um, so that's something I think that, you know, the unions are really powerful with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the wake of the bushfires, it was really powerful to see some of the unions just heading straight down the coast, being involved in rebuilding homes for people mm. um, and actually understanding that it's not just about, you know, pulling out your wallet for a monthly donation, but actually seeing what you can do in your local community that you're already embedded in, whether you're neighbours, and you have a shared understanding of what's actually needed in that moment. Mm. So one of the things that I was really impressed with that happened with the unions was the situation with the the outbreak in Victoria and Melbourne um, in the social housing complex Mm. and that they basically were put into lockdown without any preparation. So people were left without access to food, without access to medicine. There were people with mental health issues that had no supports, that didn't really understand what was happening. So absolute crisis. Then then forcibly in lockdown with armed police, like 
in a perimeter outside your building. Uh, and the unions stepped up and came with food, with resources. Like it was the unions that said, look, hey, these people need food. Hey, these people need medicine. They need um, things just to live their day-to-day in lockdown. So where did that come from? Was that just because the unions were monitoring the situation or was that a, do you have like a crisis response set up within the union? Totally. So mm-hmm. I think I'll just clarify first mm-hmm. that I think most of the response to the um, towers lockdown mm-hmm. was run by a group called Southeast Mutual Aid that was formed of um, community residents in those towers and their friends and families. And it was majority migrant communities and I think African communities. Um, and I think it actually really, um, I guess, exposed to myself and other young unionists that um, the, the instinct of the unions to step up and see their community role is really powerful and really important. Um, but also that stronger relationships were actually needed between the residents of the social housing and the unions to make it really clear who was doing what. And I think it's a classic sort of disaster response where a lot of flurry of activity happens um, and some messages get missed. So I think the the instinct of the union movement and the responsibility of the union movement to provide money and food and help and being there immediately on the immediately on the ground is fantastic. Um, But I also know in the specific incident you're referring to, it was first started by people who are actually residents themselves. Um, And it's a lesson for the union movement to take on to understand how to bolster the efforts of people um, already doing the work and how to build relationships before times of crisis. So the relationships are super strong when you you do want to step up to the market and to to help. This is what we're saying before about communities knowing how to solve their own problems the best. Absolutely. So it's, it's going to those people first and, you know, not just in the recovery but in the prevention of, of future situations totally. as well. Yeah. Sort of like an extension of the scheme that you were saying you borrowed from Norway. Yeah. yeah. Just getting out and talking to people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you, have you followed that in Norway? Is it like still very active? That it's very active. They've been doing it for 36 wow. years, I think. So we far ahead of us. We recently called them through Zoom yeah. and they were telling us about it. And it's just, it's very different over there, very different to what it is in Australia. They have like 99% union membership. So for them, they walk into a workplace and they start having the conversation and the boss comes up to them. They're like, oh, here's all the contracts. Like we're doing all the right thing. And mm-hmm. they really want to assert to them. Whereas we walk in and we have to be very, very cautious and the boss doesn't want us there <laughs> and they do everything they can to try and kick us out. And it's just, it's a very different situation, but I think um, it's equally as useful here as mm-hmm. it is there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, any normal functioning human being hopefully has empathy and they have Mm. desire to do the right thing. So how do you talk to the bosses to get them to realize that you're not the enemy, that, you know, you're you're actually, it's going to be a win-win for everybody if you can create not only um, happy workers and secure workers, but, you know, workers that are more likely to have less turnover. Mm. It's, it's a hard one. I think it's um, one that unions are probably constantly grappling with like how to negotiate with them and how to communicate to them that um our needs are their needs like we all have the same needs like we need workers to feel empowered and to feel ownership and to have ownership over their work as well um because that's when we're at our best and that's when our economy um functions for people not just for the economy um and that's in everyone's interest unfortunately um money is a very big incentive for people um and that's just that's the thing that's always going to get in the way um and yeah, I would love I would love to know the response to that. I would love to know how to overcome the money, but um, yeah, I think it's something that we're constantly working on. Well, we have to re re uh, re common the commons, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and if it is you, that constant process. Yeah, if you look back in history, there was people were able to live off of where they lived, off of the land, and they had access to things, but. Slowly, since I'm in the Scottish Highlands and even before that, the the rich have been 
and closing or, or monetizing or just sort of claiming areas mm. of life for themselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and now everything, I mean, even our keystrokes on the computer have been commercialised and, and they're getting sold as metadata to, totally. to advertisers. And, and I think it's gone extreme and that's why we actually require money for everything that we need. So mm. the more we can re-common everything and, and do it without money in a community sense, the better, the less dependent we'll be, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And it's also too that, you know, for a lot of employers who you know, maybe aren't mega corporations, but they're, you know, your average small business who employs 20 or less employers. Sometimes it's just helping them do the math to realise that saving a little bit at the front end isn't going to save them a lot in the long run. Like <clears throat> implementing some of the ideas and um, workplace um, structures would actually be more profitable for them in the long run. Yeah, it's a difficult one, I think, because... Um yeah, often for small businesses, particularly when we're working with um, hospitality, mm. they're fighting against multinationals who are trying to do mm. the same work. And so they're already, you know, one, one step behind. But I think the main issue that we have in Australia is that the regulation and the enforcement that, that businesses have to comply with is incredibly weak. And so reporting things to the Fair Work Commission is um, kind of, you know, a regulatory body without many teeth. And so for small businesses, you can explain to them what they're doing wrong and you can explain to them that they could possibly be liable for it they possibly would get a fine for it but they understand and they've calculated the risk that that risk is so low that they don't bother so I think thinking about how we communicate to bosses I think a huge part of it is actually communicating them to them that we actually have the power to um you know make them pay people properly take people safe at work and there are mechanisms that we can use that will actually um have an impact on them and so whether that's going through the courts whether that's going directly through collective action but i think for a lot of bosses at the moment they know that it's very very difficult for them to get caught so they'll just keep going so you're relying on the integrity of human nature there yeah absolutely and you know sorry scotty do you want to oh yeah yeah so i mean the thread sort of through this thing has been that um Workers are constantly getting ripped off by by the bosses, but why are the bosses doing this? What are they, what's what's the what's their goal in 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 being nasty to the workers? Really, I mean, obviously not all bosses are like that, but what are they trying to achieve through this effort? It's a big question, Scotty. Um, I guess there's many cleverer people than us who can speak about that, but effectively, particularly in Australia now and for Australia in a long time, um, our economic system is ben- is set up so that private owners control trade and they make a profit from it. That's not new, it's not rocket science. Um, so it means that when people think about how they can get ahead, how they can be successful, it's through building a little empire of their mm-hmm. own. Um, and then it's people who grow up like us who don't have huge savings and don't have the money to buy land or property or people um, who are just, you know, we become workers until the day we die. Um, and so I think you can see it really clearly, not even just in the workforce, but, um, you know, like most young people are renters as well. Um, and we pay a bit of money every month in order to live there, but we'll never own that property. Um, so I think... Yeah, you've got a small collection of people in Australia who own most of the land, most of the businesses and most of the industry. Um, And it's really easy to convince yourself that if you just work hard enough, you can be a supervisor and then a manager and then a landlord and then a really, really big boss. Um, And that's exciting because you can provide for your family. And so I think a lot of our work with young people is actually reinforcing that um, you can be proud to be someone who works and you can be proud to be someone who doesn't exploit other people Um, and that even if you're going to university and all of your lecturers are telling you the best way to get ahead is to be the big guy and to be the boss, that we actually believe there's 
a lot of pride in working together as a community and not trying to clamber over other people to get ahead. And, you know, there's also um, something I was just trying to find it here while you were talking and I can't, so I'm going to go off the top of my head too, um, that of all the billionaires in the world, um, 44% of them are inherited wealth mm. and the rest of them is basically they've become billionaires by exploiting their workforce, by being terrible employers. So that the whole idea of getting ahead um, seems to be very much tied in with psychopathic behaviour or sociopathic behaviour. Totally, totally. Mm. And I think, yeah. It's um, a tendency of a lot of people to think that, you know, we too could be a billionaire. Maybe it'll just happen next month Mm. rather than realising that maybe, you know, if we don't get that next paycheck because of a pandemic, we'll actually be in a far worse situation. But in Australia particularly, you can you can trace the number of billionaires that we have back to, um, yeah, slave labour, colonised labour, convict labour, um, or they've built their wealth in other countries through exploiting you know, masses of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And so it's not actually a very glamorous position to be in when you think about how they got there. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure you're both familiar with that film, The Corporation, which was um, studying the corporation as if it, if it was a person, like mm. its personality, and they did the test of... Um, psychopathy and it ticked every box that the behavior of the corporation if it was a person because you know corporations were given personhood right legally so they're not well let's evaluate it like a person and it actually is a psychopath so to (laughs) for a corporation to run the way under its model it's it's a psychopathic person running amok yeah it's funny that we look up to that sort of thing and you know as australians we love to think that maybe that could be us one day um but really when you think about it there's a a lot of shame in it like there's Mm -hmm. nothing you're not a good person because you're a billionaire. You've probably exploited a lot of people and stood mm-hmm. on a lot of people's toes to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really should be looking the other way and um, saying, you know, it's it's embarrassing to be a billionaire. You should be embarrassed. We are the ones that should be proud because mm-hmm. we're the ones that get up every day and make a contribution to our community. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been studies um, done about it was just North American statistics here that it was um, considered that if you earned over 75000 a year in North America, um, you weren't any happier than someone who earned 275 million. You know, like it was a, a, the happiness factor sort of reached a point as long as you had that comfortable living wage, the happiness didn't increase with the more money you made. So there were some employers, some very decent employers who decided um, to take a pay cut at the top level. You know, there were CEOs of corporations um, and then redistribute that amongst their workers so that all their workers were raised um, to 75,000 or above. And that was one particular guy I think had a tech company in Seattle who did that. And my experience of having lived in North America is that because there's such low wages there, and, you know, we think $19.84 is not enough to live on here. You try living on $7 an hour mm. and with the same cost of living. You know, it, it's just unbelievable. Four jobs, you know, sort of thing people are doing. What I noticed, the first thing that I noticed when I moved back to Australia, which how much happier workers are. And I'm not saying that all workers are happy, but when you go to a business and you're receiving service, that was what I noticed is that people were much more pleasant. They seemed to be less stressed. They were more engaged with you. And my experience of most service industry workers in North America was that they were highly stressed. They were very mm. unhappy. They didn't want to be there. They obviously weren't making enough to live. They were exhausted because they've got three other jobs. And that was something that for me was a really distinct um, difference just, you know, from getting on a plane in North America, getting off here and seeing just even in the airport, the way that the employers and the employees at the airport were engaging with you was completely different. That's so interesting. I think, um, yeah, I think a lot of it comes back to 
the fact that a lot of bosses think that people need incentives to work, that without it, we'll just sit on our bums all day and not, not do anything productive. And make our living from the commons, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Whereas, yeah, anyone knows that if given the time and the supportive environment, there is stuff to be done every hour of the day. And you think about things like even like Wikipedia, right? Mm. Like it's completely volunteer run and people have decided that we need this huge database of information and they put hours into it. Um, and you have things that are commonly created and, you know, cooperative all the time. And so um, I think there's been a couple of Scandinavian countries as well who actually have given no maximum leave um, allowance and so people can take as much annual leave as they want. And you said that to someone in Australia and I'm guessing North America <laughs> and they go, well, no, no one will ever be at work then. Um, but you see that actually, like... I guess we believe and the union movement believes that people actually want to help each other and they want to build something really beautiful every day. And so if you give people the space and time to do that, they will. Mm -hmm. And everything that runs the country expects that workers need to be forced and prodded and pushed Mm -hmm. um, to do work Mm -hmm. to be worried to keep coming to work. Mm -hmm. And that just seems pretty backwards. Yeah, and that's, again, that fear of, like, desiring to control your workers through scarcity mentality, totally, right? Totally, totally, yeah. Probably comes from the system of convict labour that we started <laughs> with as well. Good point. Yeah, the government sort of had to provide a uh, a base living for the convicts because they were essentially state-owned slaves <laughs> and the government would provide a base living for the convicts and then when they were farmed out to individuals, they had to provide incentives for them to actually do anything because... Who wants to work in that situation? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just looking here again at some of the things that were mentioned recently in the media, like Josh Frydenberg um, was quoted as saying that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan's policies were his inspiration for the economic recovery. I know, right? I mean, that he'd actually get up and say that in the mm. media, I just find, tells you a lot about that man's head. Wow, yeah. who said that again? <laughs> Josh Frydenberg, our treasurer. Yeah. Oh. So just just to, just to list some of the things that happened. So the outcomes of Thatcherism um, that the UK experienced were um, huge rise in unemployment, huge rise in privatisation. I don't know if people know that individual bus routes are privatised in the UK. People just don't own the companies, they own the routes. So the more profitable routes that are used more frequently have better service and then the night buses and the buses that are not used as frequently have really, really poor service and just don't show up sometimes and <laughs> people have been murdered because they're out in a bad suburb and the bus doesn't show up and things like that. So yeah, privatisation went up, crime went up, household debt went up, job security went down, household incomes went down, income support went down or disappeared entirely, housing construction went down, community participation went down, child well-being went down and private sector investment went down. So that's, that's a great list. Yeah, that's what Josh <laughs> Rodenberg is saying he wants to create for us, yeah. you know, post-COVID. Perfect. I think it's just really important as young unionists as well to look at how this has come to be in Australia. So, like, what we're talking about with Thatcher and Reagan is the rise of, like, neoliberalism, right? And it came to Australia in a bit of a funny way where, you know, Labor and the unions were really... Um, you know, a part of that. And it's something that we have to really reckon with today. So when, you know, in the 80s, there was stagflation, somehow inflation and stagnation at the same time, and the economy was in crisis, um, the unions really weighed up what they could win socially in terms of getting um, a better social way. So what we, what we now think of as New Start, um, getting, you know, good things for education and health and these social things. But what they traded off was actually the ability of workers to fight for their rights every day in the workplace. So we went from having a standard where unions were central to that process and they could argue for industry-wide changes. So 
um, construction workers could walk into court and arbitrate that the nurses got more and so they should too. And so really big things were possible and workers were at the centre of it to actually being reduced to having to bargain in individual workplaces. So if you've got a hospitality workplace and you've got five workers and one boss, they're all casual, it is so difficult to win changes where if you're thinking of it as industry-wide and the unions are really involved, it's much better. So we have some of the most restrictive um, industrial actions laws in the world now we can't strike for anything other than during a bargaining period between workers and the employer um, and so that really limits what unions are able to do to try and fight things like what Josh Reinberg is saying at the moment. Because you've just taken, taken away your greatest point of leverage. Right? Absolutely so mm-hmm. it's something for young workers at the moment to think about union as a concept and union being people working together and figuring out how we provide that hope and that militancy that the Australian union movement has um, you know had to battle with through the rise of neoliberalism in, in Australia. So with the co- collective bargaining that you're talking about, like, does each industry have a master agreement through their union that they've worked on that employers have to adhere to? Because that, that's how it operated where I was living before. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if it's similar in Australia. Yeah, there's um, there's industry awards, which are nationally, uh, they're national um, pieces of legislation, I guess, mm-hmm. that are set out for every industry. But for unions, what we bargain for is uh, enterprise agreements. So it's by business by business essentially um some industries where there's like high concentration of union members um they're able to bargain for like the same thing with every enterprise and create an industry-wide standard of if you want to employ someone um in a certain industry you have to pay them a certain amount you have to give them these entitlements um but essentially i think that would be our goal is an industry-wide approach to that sort of bargaining Mm -hmm. so you know like I'm just going to touch on a personal thing here. Like when I was working in North America, um, I worked in the film and television industry and I worked on both union and non-union productions. And the difference was life and death. And I'm talking about that literally where the health and safety on non-union productions could become virtually non-existent. And we actually had people killed, accidental death on the job site. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then we also had employees who wouldn't allow us to go to the funerals of our deceased colleagues when I was time off work. So that was for me the difference between being on a, a unionised production or a non-unionised yeah. production. And, you know, like this is and at that, that time of my life when those experiences were happening, I would have been considered a young worker. I would have been in my early 20s, early to mid 20s. Um, so this is, you know, where you're saying like how important for, y- for young workers to connect with their unions. Like this this is the future, right? This is this is how we're going to change things yeah. coming out of this, right? Yeah, and especially with COVID, um, like there are a lot of industries where being a union member is life and death. Um, in the ACT, you'd think of construction um, where we, we do have quite a few people who die at work um, every year in the construction industry, which is why being a part of your union there is really important um, and why a lot of the, the CFMU and the construction unions work is just going out to sites and pulling people up on the safety stuff that they're not doing. Um, but for young people, and especially during COVID, um, it's it's not that different. You get um, you get a business where lots of people are coming in every day and lots of different people and you're talking to lots of different people. Your risk for catching the coronavirus is quite high. Um, and if your employer doesn't do the right thing, they don't put in screens, they don't give you sanitizer, they don't give you masks, you're really, really at risk. Um, and that's when being a union member becomes really, really important because then you can turn around and you can say no to the unsafe work mm-hmm. and you can stand up for yourself and you can get better. Um, you can get better conditions for yourself, sorry. But it's not its not just during COVID. A lot of young workers are injured at work. It might not be 
the same life and death, the high stakes sort of injuries. Um, but our last survey of young workers, I think 49% said that they were injured just that year, injured or hurt at work. And then for under 18s, it was 40%. Wow. So that's um, teenagers, children at work getting injured. 40% of them got injured that year. Um, and and is that from being pressured massive. to do unsafe things, unsafe work practice? I would mostly? like from my personal experience, I would say so. It's partially being pressured, but also like I used to work at Macca's. That was one of my first <laughs> jobs. Uh, and you get paid legally, not well, but legally. Uh, and the safety stuff there is there's procedures around it. But once it gets busy, like where do those procedures go? Mm-hmm. They go straight out the window and you're just rushing around. And there's lots of hot things around you. Um, there's like grease all over the floor. So there's and burns and falls. Yeah, and it becomes like really yeah. dangerous. Yeah. I would have copped at least a burn or a scratch in almost every shift that I was in. Mm-hmm. And that's not high stakes. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to die in that workplace. But it just shouldn't happen. You shouldn't have to go home with those sort of injuries to yourself. You shouldn't have to sacrifice your health and your body for your work. Yeah, that's very true. So, you know, we don't want to go back to normal because we've all decided that normal wasn't really working for a lot of people and the Mm. people it was working for, we need it to not work for them because they don't have our best interest at heart. So so how do we not go back to normal? Like what are some of the things that young people can do in in connecting with their union or, um, you know, action they can take or things they can get involved in, programs, training, support? So I think there's... Yeah, there's a couple of things. I think the first thing is like we're kind of seeing young people across the country and across the world like really kind of waking up to that fact and being really motivated to to build a new normal. So if you look at, you know, the kind of sweeping Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. here, young people are so at the forefront of that and leading that. Um, but I think there is a really big gap in trying to translate young people's, um, what they feel is their power in the streets and their power as community, their power as workers. So I guess a big goal of the Young Worker Centre is um, trying to bring more people you know, into thinking about themselves who are already passionate, enthusiastic young people into thinking of themselves as unionists and building the union power of young people in Canberra. Um, And then also thinking about, you know, how we tackle casualisation particularly um, and how we get young people more permanency so they can be an active union member at work and win things there. In terms of the immediate future, we're really kind of looking at, yeah, continuing to kind of do these public patrols focused on safety particularly because it is such a big issue at the moment and getting the young workers that we do have out in the streets talking to other young people and trying to build and scale as as quickly as we possibly can um, through the state. So something I've noticed too is like I was following a lot of your social media before I had you guys on and, you know, all your recent posts that are um, up. There's always two or three naysayers that just think the unions are the worst thing that ever happened. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing they're employers um, or people who've been um, impacted by workers demanding to have their rights heard. Um, so, you know, you, you must come up against a lot of that. Like personally, when you guys are dealing with that, what's your approach? You know, when you at your workplace, maybe you've got some difficult challenging individuals that you're coming face to face with um i think i would say that people are reluctant to say it to your face (laughs) so it's safe to do it on facebook but not yeah yeah. it might happen a lot on our social media and it is it's always you click on their profile and it's manager at some pub down the road um that's saying that's saying the nasty stuff but i feel like when we've when we've been on patrols and we've been talking to people um either someone will yell something out on the street and walk past and you know, not really have the conversation or it'll be like a manager that tries to like intimidate you, but they won't say anything directly to you. Like they'll just stand over your shoulder and watch what you're doing and watch the conversation that you're having. Um, and then when you it's leave, sort of you like see the them approach the young worker. Passive that aggressive physical to. bullying. Yeah, 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 it is. It's bullying. It is yeah. just bullying. Um, but 
it also does say something that they're not willing to actually have the conversation with you um, because they're in the wrong. <laughs> Every single time they're in the wrong. I think for the most part as well, those conversations usually happen to me with friends, right? And so it's friends who might be construction managers and they go, oh, the union just comes on and they cause so much trouble and they shut down the site for weeks at a time. Um, and often it's just about actually trying to pull that conversation away from kind of like, you know, the talking points of it um, and just thinking about the values that underpin it. So like the core of union work, right, is talking to people who don't already agree with you and getting them to understand what is in their interest without ever telling them your opinion. Like that is the basis of organising and that is the basis of the work that we do. It's educating them and getting them to be able to look at things differently. Absolutely. And so um, we really mean it when we say, you know, we want to educate, we want to agitate, we want to organise. And so it means giving people the information about what unions do do, um, but also asking those questions of, well if you don't do anything, do you think it's going to get better? Mm-hmm. And actually sometimes being that voice that is questioning how they're currently doing things and then equipping them with the skills and the training they need. So if I've got a friend who's dubious about unions and they're having a time at work, it's a long process and I can't just tell them what I think, but it's about actually working with them and the common interests we share and the common anger that we share about mm-hmm. things to find the point at which they're willing to change and willing to do something. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of opposition, but we're very well trained to talk to people in a way that actually makes sense for them. Yeah, I had the experience where I was an apprentice, like an older apprentice um, in construction trades, and some of the young apprentices were really anti-union, and oh, you know, working with these guys, I was the only unionist in the whole company um, as the apprentice, (laughs) but um, I had a chance to have a good yarn with these guys, and, and, you know, why do you reckon that? Oh, why? Oh, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I sort of trained myself to do doing this show. And it turned out that they they had somebody else's class background through the media and everything and even the songs and the gangster rap and stuff. They, they thought that they were, you know, they were in it to get rich and how do you do that? You'd be a bastard and, you know, you've got to respect dog the bastard dog, yeah. boss and dog eat dog and mm. all of this stuff. And that that sense of solidarity and, and even knowing that you're a working class person is yeah. not necessarily there. That is yeah. such an astute point. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I've seen also that the unions have some really great national plans to get things moving again, you know, to help with the recovery they've actually got some very practical things mm, yeah. that um go above and beyond what the government's been suggesting which is thatcherism apparently <laughs> um so yeah, the unions that have said on their social media that you have a national plan to create secure jobs and rebuild the economy and that um there's some five key points to um enact that plan so um do, would you like me to list them or would you like to share them there so go for it um, i think you'll know them better than yeah so than one is um early childhood education and care so a big part of that is you know free child care mm. and and creating the possibility for parents to be able to return to work as you've seen during covid so many kids at home and it was deeply impactful on a lot of the parents especially single parents who didn't have another person to care for the kids so that was part of it um training for reconstruction um there's um sustainable manufacturing strategy so sustainable energy and green energy um there's a national reconstruction investment plan and also a rediscover australia plan which apparently will support 350,000 jobs in tourism the arts accommodation travel and regional services look these are all really great ideas so what sort of campaigning are you guys going to be doing for these we've got an election coming up as well which i think is forefront on your mind yeah yeah so i think yeah in 
at Unions ST and at the Young Workers Centre, we kind of have to balance um, running the national campaigns and also doing things that are beneficial for the local community. And our focus is probably foremost on the local unions and what they're doing. Um, But I think we can be really guided by this plan Mm -hmm. to um, invest in in public jobs. Um, And actually different state governments are already, we're sort of trying to pressure them to create more public jobs in the state as well. So there's a program called Jobs for Canberrans. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a similar thing rolled out in Victoria where um, as a result of the new needs for coronavirus, um, people were hired straight by the state government to do well-paid public service jobs. And I think this is kind of what this plan is hinting at as well. Just so the airline industry has a bit of a crash, massive unemployment as the planes are grounded, and then they were moving large numbers of people from that sector into other areas where they had transferable skills. Totally. And we can, you know, probably take inspiration from different different countries around the world as well who have even renationalised those industries and made them public again. Um, But I think the strongest opposition to things like Thatcherism and what Josh Frydenberg is saying is to say that our public industry is our best hope. Um, And it's the one that has the strongest conditions for people. And so whether it's in childcare or arts or tourism, looking at the role of public investment in that. So that'll be a big focus for um, the Australian Union movement and as a follow-on our work over the next couple of years. Mm, that's going to be amazing. Well, um, all the power to you guys to do that. So um, we do actually have some questions from our listeners. So, um, we always put out to our, uh, our listeners, there's anything they'd like to ask you guys mm. on air because we don't have the ability for them to phone in live. Um, so we have a question here. It says, how can unions convince young people and workers in general that a casualised workforce is not sustainable and that paying for union membership is a necessity to increase people's wages? And that comes from Kim Bryce. What a big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually the exact same question I get asked by every <laughs> older union organiser out there. Like, how do we get young people to join? Um, I will say on the first point in that question though um, I don't think that you have to convince young people that casualization is bad mm. I think we're across that there's a lot of young people that uh, that are in casual work and they prefer to be in casual work um, myself included in the past um, but the reason for myself picking casualized work over like a part-time job was purely the loading that you get so it bumps your wage up a little bit um, and without that I would not have been able to pay my rent um, so I chose the casualized work there but that's not that's not anything to do with the nature of casualized work I didn't want the flexibility the the flexibility <laughs> that's actually for the employer the false flexibility yeah yeah, yeah. Um, what what I was really looking for was a living wage mm. and I think that's that's there's a structural problem that's underlying there you can't ask people to step up and and select part-time work when that wage is not livable for a young person that's trying to pay their rent um but the second part of that question how do we get young people to join our unions um it's a really really hard question and I think that there's just a complex web of barriers that's stopping people from doing that um, and one of them is that we just we don't talk to young people enough about their unions. Um, you don't you don't hear about workers' rights in schools. It's not something that you get taught. Um, it's really only something that you hear about once you're already being exploited. You know, once your wages have already been stolen, then you go, oh, what is this union thing that I should have been doing all along? Um, so I think in part it's us being proactive and us having the conversations with young people as they enter the workforce, not just once they've been exploited, um, and telling them what a union is and showing them what a union is as well, showing them the power of collective action. Um, and for casuals, it is it is hard to be a union member because you don't know if you're going to be there next week, so you don't know whether you should bother paying the fees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the fees can can be a deterrent for some people. Maybe you're not making that much money and that's uh, paying a fee is, is not desirable there. 
Um, but there are a lot of unions that are trying different models there. Um, one being the United Workers Union who tried Hospo Voice in Victoria. So they lowered the fee there and then they offered a lot of like upfront services um, like they have apps and stuff where you can log all the hours. So if they don't pay you for a certain hours, you can say, actually, I did this. Um, and they have like a bullying and harassment journal just in case anything happens at work. You can write things in there. Um, so there are lots of things that we can do as unions, but I think... For young people, it's about making the connection between the structural changes that young people already want. We're already there. We know what, what's what's killing us and we want the change. Um, making the connection between that and the union movement, I think, is, is really vital there. So you're creating really healthy workplace habits too. Yeah. You know, you're, you're teaching people how to stand up for their rights. I'd love to see you guys take the model that you have that you're going to workplaces mm. um, into schools um, and incorporate that into like their career decision-making programs or you know the career advice that they get when they're looking at graduating. Yeah, totally. just, That would be an amazing place to really introduce young people to unions. Yeah, we have a rights at work program at the moment. That is, we do a WHNS one that's specific for people going into work experience but we also have a rights at work one for schools as well um, but it is like something that they have to opt into too so it's something that we would encourage all careers advisors to do because um, young people are obviously getting exploited it's important for them to know their rights um, but yeah we'd love to do more of that mm, that'd be great and the second question I've got for you um, is from uh, a postmistress who works for Australia Post and you imagine Australia Post has been slammed during COVID and they've had to hire very quickly a lot of new and inexperienced workers who are being asked to perform under incredible stress um, without appropriate training. So she's asking, how can unions protect workers from employer pressure to perform under unrealistic expectations? Again, a very big question. Um, I think Australia Post is a fantastic... And also Trudy Mansfield, sorry. I'm just gonna, cool. Um, Australia Post is a really fantastic example of, yeah, someone, a company and workers who've had their workload basically triple during coronavirus. In terms of standing up to employer pressure, like the real thing that gets the employer right is if they can't make someone else do it instead. And so it is really... I know that we kind of keep saying the same thing, but it is really about making sure that as many people in that, that workplace agree together to resolve not to do what the employer says they're asking them to do if it's, if it's unfair and if it's too much. Because if the employer can turn to the next person and say, he said he'd be too stressed, how about you try? Mm. Then there's actually sort of no bargaining room there. Whereas if you can get as many people as possible, and it's hard when people are new and inexperienced, so it, it takes you know someone who's willing to have a lot of different conversations. Um, but for Australia Post to really realise that no one's going to do that level of work and it resets the expectation of what it is. So good luck to you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be a lot of conversations with those newer workers. Mm, that's great. So um, I guess it's really getting down to you know people with listen to us they said look I think unions are a great idea we'd like to join up so obviously there's a membership fee are there union dues involved as well do people pay dues from their wages or is it just is it just like an annual fee has uh, it's not an annual fee it's usually fortnightly sometimes monthly weekly mm -hmm. um, but that is the dues the fee is the the union dues that you're paying um, and it's not too expensive and it tends to be um, tied to how much you're earning mm -hmm. so if you're not earning that much it's a lower fee for you um, but if you're earning a significant amount then um, you will be paying a higher fee mm -hmm. and so they, if they want to get support they can access you through the Australian Union Support Centre is that, is that right there's like a call centre if they can't come in or they don't feel um, safe they can report anonymously or call in that one I think is specifically they set that up around coronavirus so okay. I think that one's if you have questions about your rights and stuff if you want to get support um, contact your union directly so don't contact the trades hall or Australian unions we can help you if you want to contact us and you don't know what your union is 
contact us and we'll, we'll help you get there. But if you're a union member, go straight to your union and talk about those mm-hmm. issues because they'll have the expertise about mm-hmm. your industry um, and, and what they can do to help you. Yeah. And if you want to join your union but you're not currently in pay- paid employment because you are unemployed due to coronavirus, so that's still a possibility too. You don't have to be actively employed to join your union. No, you can you can join a union anytime. Um, but if you are unemployed, there's also a union called the Australian Unemployed Workers Union um, and they do a lot of campaigns on... Um, I guess like improving social security and improving the living conditions of unemployed people. And that is a free membership for Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Fabulous. And you also have something called the Supporter Program, I believe, which is um, for people who'd like to support unions, like good bosses who would like to be supportive of unions and um, maybe retired workers who are no mm. longer in the workforce but would like to be supportive. Yeah, Yeah. there's plenty of opportunities for people to support, um, even if you're not a union member or if you're a union member and you want to support further, um, donating is the best way that you can do that. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure that uh, Australian Unions has that, Unions ACT has those opportunities at the Young Worker Centre as well. Um, we always need that help from people because what we do, um, it takes a lot of resources because we're doing some really hard work um, so, yeah, it's really appreciated when people can do that. Great. And so if people wanted to get in touch with you to volunteer, to maybe look at possible training, to become a representative at work, um, where would they go to do that? Like, is it online or is it something they would better do in person? Totally. So you can go to the Union CCT website or the Young Workers Centre website and um, sign up to be a volunteer. Always appreciate that. You can get in touch if you've got any questions um, at work. And we also have, yeah, different links to different unions to community networks and particularly to the Young Workers Centre if you want to get involved in trainings and campaigns that we run. Fabulous. Mm, and as a, as a co-op nerd, I know that the union movement and the co-op movement have grown up together over the last, mm. I don't know, 150 years odd pretty much. And and is the union movement thinking of or, or actually starting a, a movement where people can move out of dependent work and into work that they own themselves? Yeah, the um, the United Workers Union is a great example of that. They started up a co-op for cleaners last year, maybe the year uh, before. Red Gum Cleaning Co-op, yeah. There's a, the, yeah. Uh, the one in Harmony the ACT Cleaning is called Oh, Harmony. the one in Canberra, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's Canberra-specific and mm-hmm. it is completely run by a group of workers um, who are local to the ACT um, and who are United Workers Union members and it's supported by the United Workers Union. So they helped them set it up. They uh, showed them how to how to run a co-op essentially and then now it's completely functioning um and i think it's it's really cool that they did that and i'd love to see more of that going on so it's a great model yeah cool yeah have to mention Earthworker too if you are interested in that check them out mm. are we out of time well, just about is there any last things you'd like to add before we sign off here I don't know. I don't think so. No, we, so co- we covered it so much. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's been terrific. Yeah. Well, a huge thank you to Bella Himmerreich and um, Rachel Burgess from the Young Workers Centre uh, with Unions ACT. You've been a wealth of information this morning. It's been so good to have you. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks thank for you so us. much for having Wonderful. us. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. 
Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U Or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new, appropriate economy. Thanks.